The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we offer this time to you. We ask you to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It struck me this week that every superhero has his nemesis, right? Batman has the Joker, Superman, Lex Luthor, the Avengers have Thanos. Even evangelical ministers like me have a nemesis. It's the George Barna group. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a joke, but the, the Barna group is one of these polling organizations specializing in polling the Christian church or the culture at large about their views of the Christian church or of Christianity Christianity in general. Pew Research is another one. And the reason that I can think of these groups as nemeses is that every couple of years, or every couple of months, honestly, it seems like, the results of another survey get released, usually to great acclaim in the media, that show that the evangelical church is going down the tubes. Every time. You've probably heard of the rise of the nuns, the increasing number of people who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. And even among the religiously affiliated, the polling news never seems to be that great. Reliance on scripture as the inspired word of God, down 10%. Belief that sex should be reserved to lifelong heterosexual marriage, down 20%. And so on and so on and so on. A survey was released recently, in fact, one that was just released by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. 65%, I promise I'm not going to do stats the whole time, I promise. 65% of U.S. evangelicals said that they believe humans are born innocent in the eyes of God. In other words, significantly more than half of people who identify as evangelicals deny the doctrine of original sin. Evangelicals. And these stats, of course, are even worse among American Protestants in general and off the charts bad amongst U.S. adults overall. The glee with which which the media reports it is because evangelicals seem to be following Protestants in general and Americans overall into unbelief. And one of the normal things something you see on survey after survey, although interestingly and encouragingly not on this particular Ligonier Lifeway survey, one of the things you see over and over again is a declining belief in the reality of hell. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, confronted with a biblical story about a place that fewer and fewer people believe in. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And despite the situations during their lives, the rich man living and feasting sumptuously while Lazarus lies outside his gate covered in sores and accosted by wild dogs, it is Lazarus 
who wakes up after his death in the bosom of Abraham in heaven. And the rich man is in hell, tormented by fire and thirst. Now the rich man can somehow see across to where Lazarus and Abraham are, and he calls out, I'm going to start reading here in verse 24. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He doesn't want to get out of the flame. He even wants Lazarus to keep acting like a servant. Send Lazarus to me. Cool me down a little bit. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So we have here heaven and hell, flames and anguish, and a great uncrossable chasm. Now, lest we dismiss this as just a story and pretend to ourselves that this can't really be much like what the afterlife is like, we must remember that there is plenty of plain scriptural teaching about the judgment seat of God and eternal separation and sheep and goats, complete with weeping and gnashing of teeth and even a worm that will never die. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 48. What are we to make of these horrible things? You can see why people would rather not believe in hell at all. This morning, I want to structure our time together around one tiny detail in Jesus' parable. One small thing that will help us see not only the power of God and the reality of hell, but also God's grace and the reality of redemption. And the detail I want to draw your attention to is the name of the poor man, Lazarus. Now, it's an interesting name in its own right. The name Lazarus is the shortened Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which is the name of Abraham's servant in Genesis. And of course, Abraham shows up here in our story. But I doubt that many of us first think of Eleazar when we hear this story. No, we think of the other Lazarus, Jesus' friend, Martha and Mary's brother, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So Lazarus is an interesting name for Jesus to choose for this character in the story. But the most interesting thing about the name Lazarus is that this character should have a name at all. This character... The man lying outside a rich man's gate, covered in sores, is the only character in all of Jesus' parables to get a name. The only one. Not the prodigal son. None of the 11th hour workers. Not the good Samaritan. None of them are named. Lazarus here is. Now, I think Jesus names this character to accomplish two things. First, to sound a word of warning. And second, to speak a word of comfort. So that's what I want to do with you this morning. Warn you about hell by reflecting on the other Lazarus. And then comfort you 
in the face of it by reminding you that Jesus knows your name. We'll look at these things one at a time. The warning or bad news first, followed by the word of comfort, the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners. Like I said, I don't think it's an accident that the name Jesus chooses for this character is Lazarus. And I want you to take your attention back with me to John chapter 11, in which the other Lazarus dies. Now, remember that Jesus hears that he's sick, but tarries, waits along the road, and arrives three days after Lazarus has been laid in the tomb. Now, Jesus does this on purpose to show just how profound his ministry will be. He is not fundamentally going to be about healing the sick, though he will do that. Jesus' ministry will be about raising the dead to new life. Dead people like Lazarus and people dead in trespasses and sins like you and me. You probably know the story of Lazarus well. Jesus weeps at the death of his friend and then calls Lazarus out of the tomb and into life. That part of the story is very well known. But this morning, I want to look at what happens next. This is John 11, beginning in verse 43. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. That's what happens in the immediate aftermath of Lazarus's resurrection. So when Abraham suggests to that rich man suffering in hell that his relatives have Moses and the prophets to warn them about the reality of that terrible place, and the rich man protests that they won't believe Moses and the prophets, but they will believe a messenger sent back from the dead, Abraham knows better. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. When the real Lazarus, the man to whom this parable cannot help but draw our attention, when Lazarus was raised from the dead and it was reported to the people who had access to Moses and the prophets, what happened? They did not believe. They did not submit themselves to the word of God, listening to the scriptures as they pointed both to the need for a Messiah and to the fact that Jesus 
Was that Messiah in the flesh? No. They sought to kill Jesus. In the same way, in the world today, and a distressing number of people who claim to be Christians do not submit themselves to the word of God. In that Ligonier Lifeway poll, 57% of evangelicals, of evangelicals, claim that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 43% of evangelicals, of evangelicals, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now that's less than half, but not by much. It's no wonder that they are not convinced when someone, Jesus Christ, rises from the dead. They don't believe that they need him. In the wake of Queen Elizabeth's death and burial, I've been thinking a lot about funerals. At a funeral service, there are several inescapable questions. Why is there death? Why does this person lie here in front of us? Where are they now? And then there are the really pointed questions. Where are you going? And why? Most people, even at a Christian funeral, want desperately to avoid questions like this. But we cannot. Jesus, by telling us the story of Lazarus and the rich man, will not allow us to get around these questions. Why is there death? Where are you going? And why? So this is your word of warning. Hades, this place of torment, is real. There is agony and flames, and a great chasm is fixed between that place and the bosom of Abraham. Take heed. Don't fool yourself. The rich man didn't end up there because he was rich. There's no way he was as rich as Abraham. The rich man ended up there because he was just like his brothers and just like those survey respondents, including the many who call themselves Christians, even evangelical Christians, who no longer believe what the Bible teaches about the faith. The rich man didn't submit himself to the word of God. He didn't believe Moses. He didn't believe the prophets. And he wouldn't have believed if someone was raised from the dead. And for this rich man in the story, it's too late. The great chasm has been fixed. So the teaching for us is to read the scriptures, believe them, submit to them. These things are true. Hell, original sin, the divinity of Christ, the word of God will tell you about these things and about your need for a savior. And it will tell you about Jesus Christ who died for your sins and who was raised on the third day to reconcile you to God. And that is why this is not merely a word of warning for someone who would avoid eternal torment. This is actually a word of comfort for sinners. The Christian musician Tommy Walker tells a story about a mission trip that he took to Africa many years ago. 
And like many people, he was moved by the profound poverty that he saw, and especially the suffering amongst the children. And he recounts sitting down with one particular child and through an interpreter asking the boy his name. And the boy didn't know. He had so little in the world, and he didn't even know his own name. It broke Walker's heart to hear that. And it was from that broken heart that he wrote the worship song, He Knows My Name, about the good news that each of us is known by God through the ministrations of Jesus Christ. This is the good news about which Lazarus's name is meant to remind us. It is perhaps the lowliest character in any of Jesus's stories, the one least deserving that gets a name. It is that kind of person lying outside the gate, desperate for crumbs, accosted by dogs, people like you and me that God knows personally. The psalmist says that God knew you even before he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew your life, your every moment, your triumphs, your failures, your sin, and he knew what he would finally do for you on Calvary's tree. Jesus took your name to the cross with him. As Tommy Walker wrote, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. This story of Lazarus and the rich man is a story about heeding and clinging to the word of God. When Jesus' friend Lazarus was resurrected, the people who possessed the word of God didn't believe. Jesus' own resurrection, to which Lazarus points, was even more profound. But again, to those who believe it, it takes the weight of sin from the shoulders of sinners, puts away all your unrighteousness in the tomb, and welcomes you as a new creation in Christ. This was the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem the world. But how do we know what God has promised? How can we cast our cares upon Christ? By heeding and clinging to the word of God. It's not just the literal miracle of the resurrection that gets you to the bosom of Abraham. That miracle happened and hell is still real. The tomb was empty and hell is still real. It is trusting in the promise of God found in the word that saves. Believe it that Christ has carried you into the bosom of Abraham by his finished work on the cross and in the empty tomb. Believe it and it is true. All the work is already done. And it is done for you. God knows your name. The one least deserving. You have a maker. 
He formed your heart. Before even time began, your life was in his hands. He knows your name. He took it to the cross with him. Call out now. Believe in Jesus and live forever. Amen.